Nehemiah chapter 9 is what we want to consider this morning. I've entitled this Remembering and Confessing Sin. Remembering and Confessing Sin. Now that the wall has been finished, you might remember from the previous chapters, the people could finally get back to what you might call normal life in the land of Israel. They settle back into their homes, and in celebration, the people gather together less than a week later after finishing the wall, and they observe the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths in the, uh, or the Feast of Tents in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. At the end of this time, they gather together again, and they recount what God has done for them as a people group in their covenant relationship with Him. They remember their history, and as a part of that, they also remember their failings, and they take some time to confess their sin and seek to get right with God. What we'll find is, along the way in chapter 9, we'll get this question answered. It's one of the most important questions anyone could ever ask in that day or in this. How can a person be made right with God? How can a person be made right with God or have the right relationship with God? In order to look at this, what we'll do is split it into two parts. First, the explanation or exposition of Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll consider what the text says. And then, the second part of our time, we'll consider what you might call an extended application. From chapter 9, yes, but also kind of taking chapters 1 to 8 together as well, because we've been seeing some themes along the way in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to bring those together in some extended application uh, for our purposes, for our congregation. So the first part begins here in understanding the elements of confession. We read in the first five verses this, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust or dirt on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places, confessed their sins, and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And then they spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites. And it gives some of the names of those leading the congregation in various ways. But at the end of verse 5, it says, the Levites speaking to the people, Stand up, praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And then it goes into a sort of explanation and extended prayer, which incorporates Jewish history, as we'll see in a moment. But what are the elements of their confession time? First of all, you notice they're fasting. They gather together, apparently as a, a corporate group, several thousand of them, they choose to fast. Now, what is fasting? It's going without something, usually food, for a spiritual purpose for a set period of time. I wonder, have you ever fasted? This is a spiritual discipline that's perhaps gone out of use or out of consistent use, even amongst Christians today, even though Jesus expected his followers to practice this spiritual discipline. Have you ever fasted? How often have you fasted because of sin and temptation? This brings to light something that we need to be reminded of over and over again, and that is to take sin seriously, to take the spiritual battle going on in the hearts and lives of every single one of us, if we're a Christian, to take that seriously. Fasting is one way to take that quite seriously, putting the spiritual ahead of the normal fleshly passions or desires. 
But secondly, they also had sackcloth with dirt on their head. So that sackcloth would be a sort of hard, rough, burlap material that would be quite, quite itchy or scratchy. It wouldn't be comfortable at all. And this was typical to wear that and to sprinkle some dust on your head. This was a, a, an Old Testament Jewish, you might call it a ritual or tradition, but it was a way to externally say what you were doing internally. It was a way to show a posture of shame and confession over sin and the issues it was causing. It was a, a demonstration that you were mourning over your sin or had a sadness over your sin. You remember in the New Testament, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In that passage, what He means there is not just blessed are those who cry or weep or are sad in general, but blessed are those, a special unique blessing from God is on those who are sad and mourn over their sin and come to God the Father through Jesus the Son to get that sin taken care of and they will be comforted. The people also separate themselves from foreigners. Now, th- this is probably twofold. It's both in the sense that uh, anyone who is not a Jew, both um, genetically, you might say, but more spiritually speaking here, anyone who is not in that category needed to be separated from the people. They may live in the land. They, they may be there, and they do get to uh, be treated under the law properly, but they're not part of the covenant community. They don't have the relationship with God that the Jewish nation has. And so it's, it's appropriate before the Jewish people consider their place before God that they, they put the foreigners to one side. Now the foreigners can still observe what's going on, but they need to be put to a side. But there's a second element here, and this goes back to what happened earlier in Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra. You remember that some of the Jewish men had married foreign wives, that is, wives from other groups or tribes around the Jewish people who do not worship the one true God. And so it seems like what's happening here, uh, for various reasons, is that in Ezra's day, he had told the people, and especially the leaders, you must separate yourselves from the foreign wives who worship a different god. And that reform took place about 13 years before this, but it wasn't complete. It was never completed. And since that time, other Jewish people have returned from Persia to the land of Israel who've also gotten themselves into this mess. And so now, once again, it needs to be stated, you must separate yourselves from this uh, practice that God has expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. And this idea of separating ourselves from uh, those who do not worship the one true God is is also stated as a command for Christians. We're told in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Christians are told, come out from the world and be separate. Show a separateness. Show a holiness. Separate yourselves to God from idols, from the idolatry of this world. Now that's not saying in any way, shape, or form that Christians are better than other people because as we're about to find out, the the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, Christians in the New Testament, we're just as broken, just as messed up, just as evil at heart, just as prone to sin. But what he is saying is if someone has a relationship with God, if someone's sins have been forgiven, if they're seeking to live for a different set of reasons and values than other people are for God and His glory and His purposes, then there needs to be a distinction. Everyone's not moving in the same direction. This world is moving in one direction, but Christians are moving in the opposite direction. And the, Jew- the same was the case for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And so they needed to make a clear distinction 
They also confess their sins and those of their fathers, acknowledging that while each of us is responsible for our own sin, we also sometimes feel the repercussions or the built-in consequences of the sins of our fathers and grandfathers. And especially for the Jewish people who had a covenant relationship as a nation with God, they had felt the reverberations of the sins of their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers who did not obey God's commands. And so because of that, they were attacked by other people groups. They were sent off to Babylon, Persia, Assyria, and they were scattered among the nations. And so they acknowledge the fact that they are feeling the weight of their sin, not just their personal sin, but also the weight of their, their parents' and grandparents' sin. And that they're experiencing that. Then they read from God's Word for a quarter of the day, for at least three hours. And they would be standing to hear God's Word read. And don't miss this. this, Then they go into a quarter of the day in prayer and remembering what God has done for them and confessing their sins. But that prayer and that confession is built on the first three hours in God's Word. Because this is the way it's always supposed to work. When we're in God's Word, and God speaks to us through His Spirit, by His Word, as He's promised to do every time His Word is opened and read and understood. When He does that, we must respond. It should be a catalyst, a springboard for our response. And that's how they respond to it as well. They confess their sins then for three hours. Now what's confession? Confession, biblically speaking, is an acknowledgement of our sins and their seriousness before God. It's more than just saying, I'm sinful, or I have done something wrong. That's true. That's part of it. But it's also having an understanding and expressing this understanding that my sin is serious because I've committed that sin against a holy God who will judge sin. It's what David does in Psalm 51. He says, my sin is ever before me. That is, God, when I look at your law and I see how, fall I, how, how uh, much I fall short, my sin is, is, is just like it's right in my face all the time. I see the seriousness of it, and it grips my heart. We're told in the New Testament, Colossians 1.21, that we naturally, every single human being, is naturally an enemy of God in our mind because of our evil behavior. That's not very flattering, I know, in our modern society, to think of ourselves as people who have evil hearts, out of which springs evil behavior, naturally. And yet that's the biblical picture that's painted for us. And because of that evil in our hearts, which comes out in evil behavior and actions and attitudes and motivations and words, therefore we are enemies with God. Every single one of us, the way we are born is as an enemy of God. Now many find that idea of confessing our sins for three hours, like like they did in this time, we would find that a little bit excessive, perhaps. Our initial knee-jerk reaction is, couldn't they have spent 15 minutes and done the same thing? I think all of us probably feel that to some point. But really, what that says about us is how we don't take sin very seriously. We don't understand the degree to which God is holy and righteous and good and absolutely perfect. And we don't understand his law, and so we don't understand the degree to which we fall short. Sadly, many, even who call themselves Christians today, think that human beings, including themselves, are basically good at heart. This is what many elements of the world system around us teach us all the time. 
Look at most, it's, it's really interesting, look at most modern cartoons that our children watch. They're taught this from a very young age. All human beings are basically good at heart. That's a lie. That's not what God says. But sadly, this insistence on the fundamental goodness of humankind means that individuals feel they have little to confess to God. Little need for Jesus to die on the cross. Why is that necessary? I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, maybe I could use a little cleaning up here and there, but I'm not desperately wicked like the Bible says. But holding to that idea that humans are basically good deep down shows that individuals, even those who claim to be Christians, really aren't Christians, for they've never understood and responded to the true gospel. I was just speaking with a friend this week. He's sharing the gospel with a young man, and this young man thought he was a Christian. And in the course of the conversation, this is many conversations, but in the course of one of those conversations, uh, my friend took this individual through what the, what the Bible says about how we, are, we have evil in our heart, how we're separated from God, how we're enemies of God, etc. And he explained that to the young man and, and said, have you ever heard that before? Do you understand that? He said, no, I, I had no idea about that. I had no idea the Bible said that. No, no one's ever told me that. And so my friend's response was, well, then you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian and have no concept of why you need Jesus. We first have to understand that we're lost and that we've broken God's law before we can then come to Christ and receive his gift of salvation. And this is vital to understand because so many today want Christ. They want Jesus, but without any admission of the seriousness of sin. But that's impossible. What they really want is a token Jesus. It's only because sin is so incredibly and eternally serious, though, that we need Jesus so desperately. And until we understand that desperate need based on our desperate sinfulness, we'll never actually come to Jesus as Lord and Savior and receive the gift of salvation. Well, we'll move on to verses 6 to 25, remembering and recounting what God has done. And to get a flavor for how the Jewish people were experiencing this moment in history, remember they were hearing the word of God for three hours, then confessing their sins for three hours. They're fasting, so they're not eating anything that whole time. And they were doing this standing up. So, you get to help me. Everyone, please go ahead and stand up. Just while I read this part, don't worry, you won't have to stand up for the whole sermon. All right? This was typical, though, even in Jesus' day. The person... Uh, often the person speaking would either be standing up on a raised area or in the synagogue in Jesus' day, the person speaking and reading the word of God would actually be seated and everyone else would be standing. Uh, That's not the way we practice it today, and that's fine. But nevertheless, this will give us a flavor. Here's what it says in verses 6 to 25. Let me read this for us. Note as I read how many different descriptions or attributes of God are described in this passage. Okay? Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and all praise. You alone are Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heaven, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are Lord God, who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land 
of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promises because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of, your foref- of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, and all the people of the land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone in the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way that they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is our God, which has brought us up out of Egypt or when they committed awful blasphemies against you. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way that they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, as you had promised to Abraham, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued them, or you subdued before them, the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they had pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They revealed in your great goodness, or they reveled in your great goodness, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed awful blasphemies. Please be seated. There's much in this passage, and we have limited time, but let's consider this. What they begin with is a reconsideration or a reminder of who God was. His attributes. They say that He's the only God and Creator in verse 6. He's also the Sustainer in verse 6. He's the everlasting and eternal God, verse 6. 
Verse 7, he's the choosing and electing God. Also, verse 7, he's the naming and renaming God. Why is that important? Because our society has this idea that your identity is fixed, whether it's at birth or for at some other time in your life. Somehow your identity gets fixed, and your identity is based on various things in our culture. But that's not what God says. God says at, at birth, our identity, you might say, is someone who is alienated from God. Someone who has no connection to God because of the sin in our heart. But God alone can change that. And when he changes a person, when he calls a person, like calling Abram, and in that process he renames him Abraham, showing that you are now a new individual. God has done something to you, Abraham. Your identity is not in what it was in before. It's not based on where you came from or of the, of the Chaldeans. It's not based on the religious system from which I brought you, which was worshiping the moon god. It's not based on any of that. Your identity is now based on your relationship to me, Abraham. God is the God who can rename and remake a person and change their identity. Our identities must be understood in relationship to the God who made us. He's also the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God, verse 8. And don't miss this. In verse 7, he's called the righteous one. That is, they say, we can trust you because you're righteous. What does that mean? Well, it means his word is guaranteed. The reliability of his word is guaranteed by the integrity of his character. Why can we trust what he says here? The reason we can trust it is because he has absolute integrity. His character is always consistent. This is why we must know his character and his attributes. They understood this, and so they say, because you are righteous, we can trust you. That is, because you are perfect, you have absolute moral perfection and character, therefore we can trust everything you say, and we know that everything you do is right. You see, we must know and prize God for his attributes. Notice also how specific they are about their sins. They say, our fathers acted proudly. This is the same phrase they use of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They use the exact same phrase of themselves and how they acted as how Pharaoh acted, which brought on the ten plagues in Egypt. You see, God's people, and this is so vitally important for us to remember, God's people are no different than the world when left to ourselves. We have the same sin nature as every other human being in this world. We're the same rebellious, sinful human beings as everyone else. The only difference for the Christian or for a Jewish covenant member in the Old Testament, the only difference is that God has been gracious to us and our sins have been forgiven. But that's a glorious difference. But it's not based on us and what we do. It's based on God and what he has done. And they acknowledge this. They say, God gave us the land. He destroyed our enemies. He made us prosper. And as a result, we didn't listen to him. We didn't follow him. And we were faithless. But then notice also how honestly they confess their sin and its causes in their lives. In verses 26 to 38, let me just mention two elements here. First, they acknowledge in verse 33, you, God, have been faithful but we were unfaithful. This, this phrase is mentioned several times throughout the Bible. You'll come across this phrase, and it's true every single time, whether it's the Jewish people in the Old Testament or us in this modern day. God is always faithful. We are faithless. If we suddenly come to the realization that something's wrong, there, there's sin, there's an issue, 
We're not connected with God anymore. As soon as we have that realization, we should have a second realization. Who messed up in the relationship, God or me? I did. It's, it's always us who wanders away. God never wanders. He's always consistent. Also, verse 38, they confess their sins. Their confession then leads to them forsaking their sin, moving away from the sin and toward God. And that's, that's always the direction it has to happen. If we truly are confessing our sins biblically, then that leads to us forsaking those sins and moving towards God. And we can only move in one of two directions, either towards God or away from God. When we move away from God, we inevitably are moving towards sin. And when we move away from sin, as a Christian, we're inevitably moving toward God. But let's bring this to two extended conclusions or applications. This is from chapter 9 and really the whole of Nehemiah as we've seen this thus far. First of all, God is patient and long-suffering. He is slow to anger. For a thousand years, God's patience and faithfulness had been experienced by the Jewish people up to this point. And we might quickly think, goodness gracious, why couldn't they have figured it out? A thousand years? I mean, how much does God have to do for them? How many miracles does He have to work? How many of His commands and His truths does He have to give them? How many of His prophets must He send to them before they'll finally get it? But I remind us that in the church age, if you're a Christian, we've experienced the unique benefits and mercies and patience and goodness of God for 2,000 years. Yet, are we any faster to confess our sins and forsake them? No. Why? Because all human beings are alike in that we are selfish and we have a sin nature and we always default back to that sin nature, which is the human problem. Why we need God. We've seen in this passage, but it harkens back to an earlier passage in Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We hear this over and over again throughout the Scriptures. But don't miss this. That phrase, that, that truth, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that cannot be said of any other God or pantheon of gods. In any other world system, it can't be said of animism or polytheism, the Norse gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. It can't be said of Eastern gods or Western gods. It cannot be said of the God of Islam. It can only be said of the one true God who actually exists. That he is fixed in his character. He doesn't change. Yesterday, today, forever. He is the same. He is fixed and what is part of his character that is fixed? He is always patient and slow to anger and abounding in love. That should give great hope to every single individual who comes to understand that truth. However, we're reminded of something else in the New Testament when Paul is preaching in the book of Acts. He says, that's true, but now that Jesus has arrived, God now commands everyone everywhere to repent and turn to the Father through Jesus the Son. That is, with Jesus stepping onto the scene, God is still the same. He's still abounding in steadfast love. He's still patient. He's still loving. But the primary way that now He is showing His love and His patience and His enduring faithfulness is in and through Jesus. And on Judgment Day, that's the basis upon which every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived on this earth 
is living or will live, will be judged. What have you done with Jesus in this life? He's long-suffering and patient, but there is a judgment coming. His patience is not forever. He will judge because he's also good. He's perfect, and so he must judge. But what will you do with Jesus in this life? That's going to be the basis of your judgment. So, friend, do you realize your sinfulness? Do you realize the seriousness of it? Have you ever repented and confessed your sins and, and begged God's forgiveness? Until you do, you cannot experience any true hope or salvation. You, you cannot experience what God has to offer. Remember our question at the beginning? How can we be made right with God? Well, the answer is clear. Only through Jesus. God most impressively shows His patience and His love by sending Jesus, His only Son, in order to save all who trust in Him. Instead of punishing everyone as soon as they sin, which would be just, the moment we commit our first conscious sin, God would be justified in punishing us for it. He doesn't do that. He lets us sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and break His rules and destroy the world He made and do all of these horrible things to each other. He's patient and He's loving and He's kind. But He sends His Son to make a way of escape so that we don't have to suffer the punishment that all of us are heaping up for ourselves for Judgment Day. So that begs the question, have you ever responded to Jesus confessing your sin and asking that forgiveness? But now a second extended application. Notice that there is a vital two-way relationship that's inspired and encouraged throughout the Bible. It's, first of all, listening to God through Bible reading and Bible study. And then secondly, responding to God through prayer and obedience. We see this exemplified in chapter 8. We see it exemplified in chapter 9. We see Nehemiah exemplifying it over and over and over again in this book. And we see it in many other places in scriptures. But these are twin aspects of every believer's experience. There can be no consistent spiritual growth or development in Christian maturity without regular cultivation of these two privileges and disciplines. Now remember the title of this series, Old, Old Habits and New Beginnings. The Jewish people needed to reestablish some important habits. They needed to get back to the basics. And so do we. This is a wonderful opportunity. It's a wonderful call to us to get back to some basic Christian principles and disciplines. I like what Raymond Brown says about this passage. He says, The serious and attentive reading of Scripture, whether privately or publicly, will create its own response. This is, this is what's so unique about the Bible. I love it. It's a living document. Because God's Word is authored and imbued with His Spirit, when this book is read and understood, it creates its own response. Not because it's a magical text, but because God's Spirit has promised to work through this book. And it creates its own response. God's Word drives us into the presence of the One whom it uniquely, eloquently, and relevantly speaks. And we will emerge from His presence as Christians who have been challenged, convicted, pardoned, taught, and inspired by listening to His Word. Every encounter with God in the pages of Scripture reveals something more of His nature, His deeds, His purposes, His promises, and His resources. And these discoveries then need to be directed into responsive conversations with the God who has spoken to us through the Bible. The Word of God stimulates the mind. It searches the heart. It directs our will. 
And you cannot have a big vision of God if you fail to spend time in the magnificent book he has given to you for that purpose. But it's not just about spending time. Spending time in his word is the first step, but then that always must be a catalyst, and it always will be a catalyst if the Spirit of God is working in your heart and life, to you then responding in prayer and obedience. But don't miss the other aspects, or the other third aspect, I should say, that's assumed in this passage. Verse 3. The people gathered together. They came together throughout the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1-7, to to serve by building the wall. They came together to hear God's word read and explained, chapters 8 and 9. They came together to worship. They came together to follow God's commands to observe certain feasts or festivals. The Feast of Tabernacles is the one mentioned in this passage. They came together in order to recommit themselves and to encourage one another to follow God. And they also came together to confess their sins and get right with God. The Israelites could have given excuses to not show up. And you remember in chapter 3, some of the nobles do give excuses why they didn't show up to serve and build the wall. But as a whole, the majority of the people came together, but they could have given plenty of excuses. After all, they had just spent two months building the wall. They're only now getting back to their homes and their farms. No doubt they had a whole backlog of projects to work on. But instead, they obeyed. And so too, the church must obey. God's people must obey what he says about coming together. You know, there's an old southern gospel song I heard as a child. It's, it's a bit folksy, but here's what it says in part of the song. It says, excuses, excuses, you hear them every day. Now the devil, he'll supply them if from church you stay away. When people come to know the Lord, the devil always loses. So to keep them folks away from church, he offers them excuses. What's that song getting at? Human beings are great at rationalizing and excusing away our behavior. Christians are the same way, even when that behavior goes directly against God. Let me, let me tell you that list once again, those six elements that they came together for, but let me add New Testament passages to them. They came together to serve to build a wall in the Old Testament, but Galatians 5.13 tells us that as Christians, if you are a Christian, you are to come together with God's people to serve one another humbly in love. They came together to hear God's word read and explained, and we are commanded to do the exact same thing as Christians in 1 Timothy 4.13. They came together to worship. We're told the exact same thing in Ephesians 5.15-20. They came together to follow God's commands to do so, to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, and we are told to come together to be with one another, Hebrews 10.25, and also throughout the New Testament to come together to observe the ordinances God has commanded us, the Lord's table and baptism, to sit under the reading of the word, and many other such commands. They came together in order to recommit themselves and to encourage one another to follow God. We're told to do the exact same thing in Romans 14, 19. They came to confess their sins and get right with God. And that's exactly what we are commanded to do when we gather together, James 5, 16. You see, what they were doing is the exact same thing we are supposed to do. It's in a different context. We're not Jewish individuals in that system, but we are followers of the one true God and we are to follow him. Now, I've noticed or heard and interacted with what I might call four excuses recently for not obeying these commands to join together with other believers at church, to be consistent in the word, and to be responding in prayerful obedience. Let me share with you these four. First of all, I've heard several individuals share with me, especially over the last two years, 
something along the lines of, well, you know, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I slept in, whatever it is. And sometimes this is applied to missing church on Sunday. Uh, sometimes it's applied to just being inconsistent in God's word and responding in prayer. But what this means is that God is not enough of a priority for you to have a disciplined a discipline schedule. If God is a priority and he commands you to be at church on Sunday, then don't stay up to a ridiculous hour on Saturday night. It's, a very, it's not easy sometimes to break a habit, but it's a very simple decision. It's very simple math. The same with if you want to have a consistent daily walk with God, you need to schedule it. You need to be consistent, and you need to give up lesser things so that you can pursue the greater thing. And if you're not doing those things, then you need to repent. Secondly, I've heard these excuses. Some of you have heard them as well, I'm sure. Some have said over the last two years, oh, well, when COVID becomes less of a thing, when the numbers go down, when the vaccine comes out, when the booster comes out, when the restrictions lift, whatever it is, then I'll come back to church. Yet some of you have used these excuses and are still not back to church or you are extremely inconsistent at church, which is just another way of saying you're being disobedient to God and you need to repent. Now, I'm afraid some of who are hearing that at this moment might be thinking to yourself, oh, well, he's not talking about me because I'm here consistently. But are you really here consistently mentally? Remember in chapter 8? We read that the people were earnestly attentive to God's word, and then they responded to it. Are you, when you come to church, are you earnestly attentive to God's word? And then when you hear it, do you respond to it? Or have you forgotten everything five seconds after we finish the service? Thirdly, I've heard some people say, as a, almost a sort of complaint, there are too many new people at church. But perhaps you don't know some of the new people because you haven't been here consistently because you haven't been obeying God. Then you would have known them. Or you've been here, but you've refused to go meet them. But more to the point, where in the Bible does it say that one of the criteria for going to church is that you need to know everyone? It's nowhere in the Bible. That, that mentality is a twisted mentality that says the church is at least partially or exclusively about me and what I want. I want to be familiar with everyone. I want to know everyone. Church isn't about you. It's about Jesus. The idea that there are too many people is really just another way of saying that God is blessing the church, convicting people of sin, bringing people into the church, and causing them to trust Christ. And if you're really complaining about that, then there's a huge problem. Do you see how our mindset is so easily twisted and why we need to repent and ask God to change our hearts, our minds, and our actions, just as the Jewish people were at this time? But fourthly, regarding consistent Bible reading and prayer, I've heard some say that their schedules have been interrupted recently. And, and because they're partially or completely working from home, it's just, it's just made havoc with life. And it's made it difficult to be consistent in the word and responding to God in that way. Now, I'm sure all of us can sympathize. Over the last two years, we've all seen our schedules go up and down. So that's, that's true. That's a thing. However, this likely means that we've been building our schedules primarily around work and not our relationship with God. If you need a consistent work schedule, 
in order to have a consistent time with God, then something is seriously wrong. An easy illustration to prove this is what happens when you retire. Does that mean you'll no longer spend any time with God because you don't have a consistent work schedule? You, you see, something has been inverted. Something is the matter. We can boil it down to this easy illustration. If someone offered you $100 to read your Bible and pray every day, or offered you the same amount of money to be consistently at church with other believers, as God already commanded you to do, would you do it? Most of us would. Why? Because we want the money. So then the question becomes, is Jesus worth more than $100? It's pretty simple. You will do what you value. So what do you value? Your actions will show it. Also, and this is particular to our members, those who are members of this congregation, remember our church covenant? You've covenanted with other believers in this body to be consistently joining together, consistently pursuing God, that means in his word, and responding in prayer and obedience, to serve together, to edify one another, and many other elements that are contained in our church covenant that all of us agree to, all of us covenant together to when a person joins our congregation. But several of you are breaking that covenant you made. You've lied to God and you've lied to his people. And it must be repented of. All of us have some things right now that we need to confess and forsake and repent of. But just as the Jewish people needed to restart some good habits that place God and his word at the center of their lives, so too we need to do today. I remind you that God's mercies, because God is always consistent, you remember, his mercies are new every morning. He still forgives. He's still patient. He's still abounding in steadfast love. So, confess your sin. Seek him if you're a believer, and then walk in obedience and refuse the old sinful habits, as Nehemiah encouraged the Jewish people to do. Refuse the old sinful habits and start new godly habits with God and his word at the center. I'm going to ask that everyone just bow your head for a moment. There are some uh, challenging considerations for us this morning. I'm going to give you several moments just in quiet prayer between you and God in your own heart. Confess or forsake any sins that are there. And then I'll bring us back together through prayer in a few moments. Let's pray to the Lord. Father God, we acknowledge that both as individuals and as a church body, we are prone to wander away from you. We are often faithless, and we often wander, and we need to be called back, just as the Jewish people needed in this passage. I ask by your Spirit's power that you would work in each heart and life to draw us all back to you, that we would confess sins that need to be confessed, whether they were mentioned explicitly over the last few minutes or other things that you've brought to our heart and mind. We've often become lax and lazy and apathetic over the last couple years on several fronts. 
we confess that. We acknowledge it. And we ask your pardon. Thank you that because of Christ, we know if we come and forsake and confess our sins, you will pardon us. I pray for any in this room who do not yet know you personally. That they would come to know you for the first time. And the process is the same. To confess and forsake their sin and find forgiveness only in you. I ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.